I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloth. All right, folks, we survived Halloween. We're through it all. We love it so much, but it's gone. Good riddance. Too spooky, am I right? <laughs> it's too spooky. Uh, all of the mummies and vampires and ghosts, they're gone for now, but they'll be back. Don't don't you worry. Um, <laughs> uh, no, one's, no one's worried about this. <laughs> no one's worried about it. Did you? Uh, what? What's your number one Halloween uh, highlight, though, Matt? Um, I no, uh, nothing. I got to eat candy. I got to eat candy. <laughs> that's the highlight. That's all. Okay. That's all it is, man. I ate Fair a enough. lot of. I I ate a lot of little Snickers. I could have eaten one regular Snickers, but I think they taste better when they're when they're fun size. Yeah. And, uh, my son can't eat them because he's allergic to peanuts, so I got him. I got all the Snickers in a big pile, and that's great. That's, that's a highlight. You gotta, you gotta figure out how many uh, little Snickers equal one big Snickers. Yeah, I don't want to know because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I ate that many at least. Uh, what about you, Dean? Yeah. What was your big uh, Halloween high point? Um, we took a 16 month old baby friend of ours. It's <laughs> so weird to put it that way. <laughs> Just a good uh, buddy of ours around uh, a rich neighborhood of Toronto. And that was great. Um, seeing all those big, uh, rich decorations in big, rich houses <laughs> asking for rich people's candy. It was, you know, a uh, extremely modest effort to redistribute some wealth. And <laughs> did um, you get any yeah, full size candy bars? Uh, there are a, a few, although you could tell that the parents were like, we know that this child is not going to get them. So it's just like a wink and a nod. Thanks for that one. <laughs> That's great. Um, it's just parents conspiring with other parents to make sure that at least somebody gets to eat some candy. You know, it's not <laughs> your kids. Exactly. Um, um, great. It's, um, it's fantastic. And it'll happen again next time next year. And it'll be just, it'll be just as good as this time. I'm sure. Um, but in church time. This past week marks a different type of holiday, <laughs> one that's not as exciting as Halloween, less candy, uh, called All Saints Day. And um, let's see, if you're not a Christian person, you probably don't know what that is, or maybe you do. I don't, I don't know you in your life, but anyways, <laughs> if I, if you don't know, it is a a moment where we're supposed to sort of remember the lives of the people who have kind of gone before us and and led sort of strong, faithful, and moral lives, and kind of shown us the way. And I don't know what that might actually mean can mean like a lot of different things. Um, 
like at my church it's it's like a sort of a longer sort of time where the the priest is sort of reading off names of loved ones who've passed you know recently or not so recently and it's nice it's a whole nice thing um but in a different way of thinking it is a certain like moment where we as people who are there <laughs> in those moments are kind of like informed about uh, what types of possible lives and politics there might be for you as a Christian person, right? It's like uh, all of these people have lived before you and gone before you and they've sort of set like a, a standard or like uh, they've set an example and maybe you could kind of, um, you could you could do that too if you really wanted to. Uh, Dean, is that your experience? Is that All Saints Day for you too? I don't know. Is it different in the Catholic Church? I couldn't tell you. No, I think it's pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. You uh, think about those saints. You figure out what you got to do to be a saint and hope for the best, I guess, uh, as you look down <laughs> down the line toward Advent. Uh, but yeah, no, I think you're right, right? The, especially if you're on the left or you're a Christian person, just trying to think about how to be a, uh, a person who cares about making a better world. Um, it is an opportunity to reflect on what resources are available in not just the Christian tradition, but maybe in our own lives too, right? Connecting us to our own ancestors, maybe in some way or loved ones, and then connecting us again to that like deep well of church memory or church uh, archives of people who did wild stuff, <laughs> right? The, yeah. And the point is to maybe activate those those passions inside you to get you to be like, maybe I could be a person who does some wild stuff. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, potential in a day like that even though it can maybe get lost in the uh <laughs> the routine of the liturgy yeah i think so i mean it's a it's an interesting time right you're not just remembering your ancestors uh or you know the people who you know went to church and have passed on or whatever but you're remembering all the saints within christian history and all of just the buck wild things they got up to um for example i mean if you're a person on the left this can mean a lot of very interesting things and also maybe a lot of conflicting things as well but you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about St. Francis and how his particular witness and canonization means that the, the rejection of private property is definitely within the realm of possibility for Christian life. Right? There's a, there's this guy who is kind of against wealth and thought that um, that people sort of, uh, I mean, clergy especially, should, um, should forgo all of it. And he was canonized. A real person who didn't believe in private property, canonized in the church. Pretty cool. Um and I think that's important because those set up a, a certain type of, um, yeah, possibility, right? Um, people on the right, like people on the right of Christianity will, you know, um, they'll say things like socialism, Christianity, they don't go together. There's nothing there. There's, uh, just, full, there's just contradictions, et cetera, et cetera. But like you can actually go back to the, um, <laughs> I don't know, different saints and say, look, I don't know. You might you might not like me as a person or my politics, but this guy who is, you know, in your religion is uh, is a communist and in church history. And there's nothing <laughs> you can do about it. Um, right. So, yeah, I don't know. That's like uh, th that's important, I guess. So I think that kind of brings us around to a particular idea that, um, man, it's hard to say maybe a, a good starting point for like where you'd find this place but i think it is definitely like a, a postmodern idea or at least it's an idea that has a lot of traction in postmodern philosophy called a uh, political imagination um this is like a phrase that people throw around a lot and it can be a really complicated topic for people interested in marxist philosophy for sure because it's um you know about your imagination it's about uh, you know the ideal um it's really easy to get <laughs> the one thing marxists hate more than anything <laughs> no. else ideals and imagination <laughs> they hate them 
They hate him so much. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a certain way you could uh, talk about political imagination that is probably too idealistic or maybe uh, not materialist enough. I don't know. You got to just strike that good balance, you know? Not really. <laughs> the dialectical, the perfect balance. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, but all that being said, I think that uh, for me, in my own particular walk with Marxist philosophy, um, <laughs> political imagination has always been kind of a helpful idea for thinking about, like, why people get so stuck in bad ideas and like and not being able to kind of break out of their um their weird ideas about uh capitalism and the morality around that sort of thing so i thought that um uh it'd be good to think through that idea a bit more deeply um and then just as i was thinking that i picked up um the october issue of the monthly review which is a great socialist magazine that you can go read yourself um, and there is actually an essay in the newest issue um, about the political imagination and history and time, how all these things work together. Um, so, look, that's divine providence. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, it is a really cool um, article. It's called Powers of the Other Shore. And uh, it's by Siraj Giri, I think. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing it wrongly, so I apologize for that. But it is a very cool article. And it's a really kind of creative and clever investigation of uh, the the uses of imagination and kind of gently encouraging Marxists to be a little open to how uh, how imagine imagination plays a significant role in people's movements, especially among the oppressed classes. And there's a lot going on in it, a lot of different moving parts. You can read the article for free at monthlyreview.org if you want to check that out and follow along at home. We're not going to like talk through it point by point, but um, it is interesting because uh, it draws on a lot of non-Christian sources, and that's helpful for us to maybe create some points of contact with uh, other ways of thinking on the left. And I think like Christians are really good at thinking about imagination and political imagination, sometimes to a fault, right? Like <laughs> it's like all we're doing. Exactly, exactly. It it really is all we're doing. I mean, your favorite critical theologian in the United States right now is probably doing that right now, right? And like it's not useless. I'm, I'm not trying to disparage it, but I think we can sometimes let that be a stand-in for actual politics. And this is a I think a great article just because it maybe helps us connect some of those dots, like. If Christians are really eager to be thinking about imagination, then uh, we should also be eager to try to figure out how to uh, put that in dialogue with, you know, real material movements and politics and so on. So we'll use this essay, this providential essay that was dropped right in in, uh, in Matt's lap at the exact right time. And we will uh, take that as an opportunity to think about uh, maybe political imagination, Christianity, politics, all with All Saints Day in the background. That's how we got here at the beginning. <laughs> it's a wild yes. ride. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think it goes together. I By the end of this episode, it's definitely going to go together. Yeah, I think so. Well, I, I mean, it's important because, um, okay, the, there's the the old Marxist adage at this point. Maybe Frederick Jameson said it first. Maybe it was Slava Zizek. No one's, no one's quite sure. I'm actually pretty sure it's Frederick Jameson. But uh, it's, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? Like that is the sentence that everyone refers to when, when it comes to political imagination. Um, and, and rightly so, right? I mean, it's, um, it's easier to imagine, you know, climate change killing us all and, uh, and drowning in the rising, the rising seas than just to think of a different way of living our lives. Um, and that is, I think, why political imagination is maybe so important, right? We have a whole lot of bad ideas um here before us 
<laughs> and uh, it would be great to stop spinning our wheels with those bad ideas and maybe think of a good idea, something that's a little bit outside the um, the logic of the uh, politics of capitalism. So, um, yeah, that's why political imagination is important. And, um, of course, our ideologies, our faiths, and all kinds of other things are wrapped up in, like, what we see as possible in the world, right? Um, so let's talk a little bit about this article. I don't, like Dean said, I, we don't need to, like, wade into the depth of it because there is a lot going on. Um, and especially a, a lot of things that, I don't know, maybe just, uh, it's like, you know, two in the weeds to make the point that we want to make. Um, but I do want to set it up just a little bit and I'm not going to, um, read it word for word here because again, it's a lot, but the article is really rotating around, um, a particular, uh, Indian colonial struggle in the 1800s. Okay. Um, man, I don't know very much about United States history. I definitely don't know very much about Indian history, and that is my own fault, but it is a fun thing to learn about uh, just a little bit, and uh, it makes a cool point here. The The article it revolves around a war, uh, a particular colonial struggle in the 1800s between the British and, I guess... Um, the, the ruling class. The ruling class of India, sure. That's maybe a good way of putting it. Um, okay, so it revolves around this one particular figure named Mahar Sidnak, who is uh, this, like, um, warrior... Um, of like the it's like sort of 19th century moment and um there's a lot of stuff going on with this particular person he's actually fighting on the side of the british which is kind of complicated um but he ends up becoming this sort of like figure for anti-caste struggle in india and he's like a, a figure that's really like energizing to the the youth of the movement and um and, and that's like interesting right he's like this sort of like war hero that comes to symbolize a, a particular um uh, idea about India, but um, the British colonial rule stuff is complicated. Um, and it's like kind of all happening in the background. Um, but but the um, the particulars of the story, I guess this is sort of the interesting part of the article is that the particulars of the story like that he's fighting on on sort of the colonial side, a lot of those things kind of fade into the background and just the um, just sort of like the character of this particular um, this particular person, Sidnock kind of rises to the top and and even since then um this character has become you know wildly popular again in india um the article makes reference to a handful of different youtube channels kind of like taking apart the story and like talking about it it's like a a folk tale in that sense but even more than that it's a part of like the larger even like um the larger sort of culture of india there's a a, a movie on the horizon about this, like this person and the, the article is um, kind of getting into this particular figure because he's like a really mobilizing political figure, you know, dis despite sort of like some of the problematic background of this person. I mean, even, you know, for the contemporary moment, um, but it's it's kind of taking a look at like what's going on with like myth and history around this particular battle around this particular person. And how is this like, um, I don't know, making people interested in politics or in resistance to sort of um, a type of, uh, a type of hege hegemony or something. And um, I, I know I've kind of butchered a little bit of this, but just because of the, the different cultural background, it's hard, it's hard not to. Um, and I think that's fine, <laughs> I guess. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, it is like a really interesting kind of retelling of a really familiar story that I think we see all across um, Western culture as well, though, you know, there are these characters um, that become, you know, larger than life, the, 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 the details of their particular situation become less important than their, you know, what they mean to the, to the larger movement. You know, I guess what we're talking about here is like folk heroes and how um, people's movements and political, political movements come to like 
take on those uh take on the mythology of those people and use them in really interesting ways yeah for sure and exactly like the point is that uh if you just had the facts of the situation um it you know that would be fine i guess like there's a place for that for sure uh, but the mythological character that kind of ignores all those facts is actually where all the energy is, right? The revolutionary energy is not in the, the facts of the story necessarily, but in what this person comes to represent or what this character comes to sort of mean for people. And obviously this happens on the right and the left all the time, so it can be for better and for worse. But you could think of lots of examples even in, in left-wing history, right? Lots of uh, leftist heroes, <laughs> for lack of a better term, who, um, you know, the finer points of their life or particular decisions that they make are questionable or problematic and, and so on, but they appear as kind of, uh, uh, you know, looming, energizing characters. I mean, you could even maybe say the same with Marx in a lot of ways, right? Karl Marx, if you read a biography of him, there's lots to like about him. There's also some things to not like about Karl mm -hmm. Marx <laughs> and his life and decisions that he made. Um, but nevertheless, uh, he is a mythical character, right? He has changed the face of uh, the world more than any other philosopher in the 1800s, I would guess, <laughs> for sure. Um, maybe uh, any other philosopher in history who could say, I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate it. The point is, um, if you just sort of read off the facts of a, a biography of a character, you're not really going to get moving, right? But um, people and events come to symbolize uh, bigger and bigger struggles. And the article by this Indian scholar is looking at a particular situation in India where this has been the case. And uh, there's a, this kind of folk hero that rises as a symbol of caste struggle and still today is a kind of you know, he is that torch uh, that is being burned <laughs> by the, the lower caste, and there's a lot of conflict around it already. So the idea is that um, Marxists shouldn't kind of look down on these things as, oh, that's like backwards or superstitious, and Marxists do have a tendency to do that. Uh, Marx and Engels both did it themselves in their own writing, and other people do too. Uh, but I think it's a great article kind of demonstrating with some concrete examples why we shouldn't be so quick to look down our noses at those kinds of popular displays of devotion. <laughs> I don't know. There's some interesting resonances here mm -hmm. as we were talking about All Saints Day, right? Like uh, the sort of popular cult of saints that rise up that also are not really attentive to the particulars of their life necessarily, but that doesn't really matter, right? It's sort of... Uh, it takes on a life of its own. It has a significance of its own. And uh, people on the left and um, Christians especially should maybe be uh, more willing to um, take that for what it is, to see it as symbolizing the power of a movement rather than the uh, the backwardness or the sort of unenlightened part of a movement. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, I don't know. I think Marxists are wrong to do that. <laughs> um, it's, it's not an unenlightened part of the movement. It's like, a, you know, mythology can be a really catalyzing moment um for resistance against all kinds of different uh very bad hegemonies i don't know i'm, I'm thinking of like everything we've ever talked about on this show in in this sort of vein right like um man i couldn't even tell you which episode it is but a, a long time ago we were talking about the um like the the appearance of uh the version of guadalupe to um to indigenous women in Central America or or like Joe Hill or I mean Jesus. I don't know. Like this is this is the way that sort of like these <laughs> mythical structures they, they crystallize around, I don't know, certain types of kind of like epiphany sort of events. I mean, you know, whatever that might mean in any given situation. 
um you know whether it's like the the murder by the state like joe hill or jesus or like a miraculous apparition these can be like really powerful moments for resisting um power that i think you know you can't just turn a blind eye to you can't just say it's like i don't know backwards people that doesn't that doesn't quite work out i don't think um yeah yeah well let's talk about the article a little bit here so um you know i kind of stumbled through the beginning telling you the details of the story because it's like not really my story to tell um and that's fine but uh when when it kind of comes down to like the heart of the matter the um the article talks about um these characters that have this sort of like role in popular movements they start they start talking about them as mythical epiphanies and i think that's a really i mean (laughs) kind of a magical phrase to use but i'm like really actually excited (laughs) about it um so i'm going to read this this bit here and i think it's um it's a bit long but it does get to like the heart of what's going on here um all right so uh it goes like this mythical epiphanies are interferences of extra temporal truth into the existence of those who think themselves to be enveloped in historical time the interferences of extra temporal truth frees militants from historical time that then in full felicity the past can be accessed from within the bosom of the present oh man (laughs) you know we're doing (laughs) philosophy now you know we're talking about history now this is great (laughs) Um, so there's a lot of words going on here for sure, but I mean, I think what's, maybe we can break it down a little bit, right? Um, so a mythical epiphany, you know, this, um, this sort of moment where uh, a character from the past becomes, um, you know, sheds new light, sheds a new type of truth onto the uh, moment of the present, right? That's kind of what we're talking about here. Um, in this case, it's, you know, um, uh, a soldier from the 1818s. (laughs) or whatever like kind of giving new light to to political struggle in india uh you know it could be um joe hill giving new light to the labor struggle in the united states it could be the virgin mary um appearing and telling you to tear the mighty from their thrones or whatever like all of these are are kind of what we're talking about where um there's an extra temporal truth something that's not just it wasn't true you know it, it wasn't just true when it happened it wasn't just true after it happened but it's true now it's sort of like outside the situation breaking in um and uh you know you think that you're you're in a historical sort of moment with all these specifics what could somebody from the past possibly have to say but surprise it has a lot to say right there are these all these ways that um joe hill or mary or jesus or or mahar sidnock or whoever right they have a lot to say about the the current situation um and uh you know now you can tell once it's happened um it's a really fascinating way to put it all i think for sure. I think, too, that line that you read that uh, the the interferences of extra temporal truth free militants from historical time. I think, uh, you know, it's a it's a wordy thing. Um, definitely. We're doing philosophy now, but I think it works. Um, and it's important to kind of break that down too, right. There's this interference of something outside of time, some kind of truth that's being expressed that isn't contingent on getting the timeline straight or getting the timeline right. Uh, and when you can kind of find the truth that is offered up by a figure in the past, even if it's not a factual truth necessarily, um, the truth to which they bear witness, right? Like, for instance, the truth of liberation or the truth that, um, you know, a particular class relationship is oppressive, whether that's a, a caste system in India or a, a medieval feudal system in Europe or whatever it might be. Um, when you can kind of see that the grain of truth that's present there, it frees you from your own historical time. So 
you know, it expands your imagination. I think you mentioned that quote earlier, Matt. Uh, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Uh, capitalism is such a pervasive ideology. You know, we we see our world limited by the horizon of capitalism, like it's as far as your eye can go. Uh, and I think that's true even of how we view history. Like, I, intuitively, if you grow up in a capitalist society, I think it's easy to see capitalism as a natural outgrowth of history, right? This is where history got us. Uh, you'll hear it all the time from capitalist apologists. Uh, capitalism is just the way that people are, right? It's the natural economic activity of human beings uh, left to their own devices. If two people met in a field, they would be capitalists. You know, this is the kind of history that we live in, uh, basically. Um, and so those flashes or interferences of some kind of truth that is outside of that timeline uh, frees us up from that history, right? It, it expands the horizon a little bit. Um, it, uh, it maybe gives us a different scene of two people in a field <laughs> or like makes us ask better questions of like, where did these people come from in the first place? Who owns the field? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like it, it gets us out of that abstraction, that kind of, uh, bad historical, uh, trap and, uh, allows us to think history differently by virtue of, um, what those kinds of mythical truths, uh, open up or allow us to access in mm -hmm. the past. All these people need to stop meeting in the field. They gotta go somewhere else. Meet, meet in a better place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, in the agora. Um, <laughs> That's right. In the marketplace of ideas. We're really doing philosophy now. <laughs> okay, so there, there's all. This all sounds cool. I, I imagine you, uh, the listener, you're like, wow, good stuff. I, I'm loving this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but are there any big objections you might be thinking? And uh, yes, there are. Um, so the art, the article, uh, Geary, the, uh, the author of the article turns to start talking about, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and, um, like the Spartacist, you know, so like the Spartacist league in, in Germany. Um, I mean, what was now it's now Germany. <laughs> Wasn't then I guess exactly complicated history, <laughs> a lot of moving parts here. Anyways, the Spartacist league, they, uh, Rosa Luxemburg kind of wrote about how they were using the, the figure of Spartacus, uh, as a historical figure to kind of do this, this thing, right. It's sort of like this, like sort of folk hero that, um, is breaking in and giving new meaning to, you know, class struggle or, or whatever. Um, and there is a little bit of, of rub there, uh, in Marxist analysis. Um, for example, there's a little bit of a back and forth between, um, uh, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and and like using Spartacus as a figure to do socialism, and uh, Georg Lukash, who is uh, you know a, a very orthodox Marxist, um, <laughs> but sometimes not. Um, anyways, uh, Lukash uh, kind of brings this point uh, that uh, this phrase I don't really find too helpful, but um, that that using figures like Spartacus or or whoever as a as a stand-in or as like a folk hero as a quote unquote organicist. Like one of the big disagreements with Luxembourg, Luxembourg had this idea that uh, revolution would sort of emerge spontaneously. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm giving you a, a read. So there are people who will not see Luxembourg saying this. Anyway, this was the disagreement within Marxism. That's why it's important. <laughs> the disagreement yes. was people read Luxembourg fairly or unfairly as uh, putting a lot of faith in the spontaneity of the masses, right? That They would just kind of like catch the flash of revolution and do it organically. That's where our organicist comes from that you wouldn't have to have a big vanguard party to get them all in order. It would just kind of occur. Uh, and, you know, that's not 
for instance, what the Bolsheviks did, right? I mean, there, there's a, di- a dialogue to be had with uh, the the spontaneity of the masses, right? You can't ignore it, and, and there is spontaneity and so on, but um, you got to, like, make some big plans. You got to lead lead the masses as well, and there's this kind of weird uh, conversation going there. So that, that's what Lukács is doing, at least, of being like, mm-hmm. uh, by holding on to Spartacus, you're sort of appealing to this organicist hero who just sort of emerged out of nowhere, right, <laughs> in... Uh, in ancient Greece out of the class contradictions that were present there, as opposed to um, organizing yourself around, you know, the, uh, a strategic plan, um, a, uh, a political party and so on. Not to say that, you know, they were, they were part of a party and, and everything else, but where does the energy come from? I think that's the point of difference at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good way to put it all. Um, and pretty helpful. Well, uh, Geary goes on to say though, that, that um, the, like the the mythical character right the the mythical epiphany that kind of appears is um maybe not best thought of as organicist right not uh, uh but but something different something more strategic uh so he writes this um it's not it's not organicist but it's part of a strategic movement of rupture that bears witness to the full density of historical oppression it is not an easy gesture of freedom or liberty but one graciously bearing the weight of the world and the burden of the past so, I mean, this is, I think, actually negotiating that exact thing that you're talking about, Dean, though, like the, uh, you know, um, do you lead the party or does it just happen or whatever? But I think this is it, right? This is like the uh, it, taking up a, a a mythical character like that into your into your movement of politics or whatever. It's not organicist, um, but it is like it's strategic. It's using a particular character in a particular way. Right. And like um, using that character to articulate uh, a particular um like historical dimension of the class struggle or of the struggle itself. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is a pretty fascinating way to put it though. I mean, it's not just like, I think this will end up being an important part when we get to the, the Benjamin portion. I mean, you can't talk about history without talking about Benjamin, but um, when it gets to the Benjamin part, the, the, the strategic part of the all is, is really important. This is not mm-hmm. just like an appeal to like, wasn't it like, you know, it's not just an appeal to like how great was George Washington or something, right? Yeah, like that's yeah. not the same thing. There's a sort of a strategy involved in uh, in in using these like sort of mythic characters in uh, in class struggle. Yeah, and you know it's <laughs> there's a way of imagining Spartacus that fits into a strategic situation too, right? Uh, Marx famously loved Spartacus um, for what he represented about Rome. Did I, I think I said wrongly a minute ago. Did I say? ancient greece anyway whatever he's from rome <laughs> it doesn't really matter the point is no, it's uh, all history back there who cares it's all history back. yeah they're they're all the same um the uh but what i mean is you know uh i guess there there's a there's a way in which uh you can activate any sort of character in history uh within reason toward those strategic ends right so it's not a uh, the article I think is really interesting because it's kind of like it's splitting a hair in Marxist theory, but like a very important one. <laughs> like mm-hmm. It's not being like, uh, oh, they were wrong to kind of seize on that that line through history that they wanted to pull into Germany through the Spartacist League or whatever. But rather to say um, this author is being like, I'm not saying Geary is saying I'm not not saying uh you know, um, oh, we just have to wait for folk heroes to emerge. But rather, I'm saying there is a, a kind of a strategic opportunity in the emergence of folk heroes. And they they say something uh, about the struggle itself, which is a, a very cool thing. And a really, you know, not exactly as as orthodox Marxist as I think Geary wants us to believe. But I don't care. I think it's better. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. Uh, 
That's great. Well, okay. So we don't have to stick with like Spartacus though. There's other, there are other, uh, other characters that do appear. Uh, so Geary turns into uh, um, other characters who I, I guess maybe like the, the Western audience might be more familiar with. So he says, uh, might then it might be quite sobering to keep in mind that Sidnock, which is the the person kind of in this Indian context that's very important, is not the first mytho political figure standing for the fight against oppression and injustice. Such figures as uh, Spartacus, of course, have r- arisen many times before. But considering Sidnock's interface with Western colonial empire, it might be better to think of Emiliano Zapata or the Haitian Francois Macandal, who are similarly located with, within those types of colonial situations or those kinds of struggles. Um, so he goes on to say that the mythopolitical character of Zapata or Macandal uh, finds powerful articulation in the works of anti-colonial writers like Alejo Carpentier or um, Eduardo Galeano. Um, what's up? Hades Marin rebel Macandal uh, embodies tremendous mytho- mythical powers that Carpentier calls the powers of the other shore. Macandal's rebellion in 1751 is like the primal scene, not just for the later 1791 slave rebellion in Haiti, but one might dare say for all black rebellion and black power outside of Africa. Okay, well, I wouldn't want to contest that, <laughs> but um, that's a really interesting articulation, I think, right? That it's, um, here, here are some other examples we can kind of uh, think through in, especially like the, uh, like a, a leftist anti-colonial struggle, right? You, there's Zapata in Mexico, um, and ends up being a, a really important uh, figure for Eduardo Galeano and the Zapatistas, but also Macandal in, uh, in Haiti. And um, I think, uh, that that end line that's really interesting. The, I mean, the importance of Haiti in the slave rebellion, I think, can't be overstated. Um, there's another uh, essay, actually, or an, an interview in the same issue of Monthly Review about um, the importance of the Haitian Revolution and, and some things going on there. But there's a really fascinating part that I don't think um, had registered with me before I read the interview. Um, just the, the point was, though, that the Haitian Revolution, the overthrow of, of Haitian slavery, um, like kind of led to the um the louisiana purchase in the united states and like you know there were all kinds of slave rebellions in the united states that were like that were spurred on by um uh uh, you know the now free haitians uh in in the united states and and that's just like really fascinating i don't know i don't think i um there's a whole lot more about this in like black jacobins and, and other places too but man there's a lot of really interesting interconnections there uh within like the the role that haiti plays um within yeah i mean black rebellion i think is a, is, is it um so yeah i mean there is other ex- other examples of um times where yeah anti-colonial movements will pick up these characters um that end up being you know larger than life but really important to those struggles and in a in a historically grounded way but also in a strategic way yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that is so fascinating, though, uh, so you mentioned the the phrase, the powers of the other shore, which, of course, is an important piece of the, the title of the article, too. Um, I think uh, there's such an interesting moment in this article, too, where he talks about something way beyond historical uh, fact. Um, he mentions that Mackendall, in the memory of him, there are all these uh, kind of like magical qualities that he mm-hmm. possesses or miraculous events that happen around him, right? That there are these, uh, just, you know, not, not empirically verifiable events <laughs> to mm-hmm. put it lightly. Right. Um, and so if you're like a crude Marxist materialist, or indeed, if you're Marx and Engels, <laughs> you'd be like, Oh, that's a bunch of like ornamentation, right? You got to get down to the very bare facts and that's where you find the revolutionary impulse. Um, but Geary does something cooler i think he's he writes about it saying uh 
deep from within a hazy past, there often shines forth a hero figure, historical and mythical in equal measure. The figure exudes miraculous powers and fantastic possibilities. In the dense interrelationship between the past, present, and future, a fact lifted from the inner recess of history can suddenly acquire a kaleidoscopic, many-sided meaning and resonance in the present. Yeah. Right? Like, there's oh, something yeah. beyond just, like, getting the facts straight that makes a big difference. And, you know, this is true of the saints, right? Like, um, the saints accrue these wild stories about them. Um, they accrue miracles that are attributed to them. And whether we believe in them or not, the the point is these aren't, um, you know, they don't belong to the kind of scientific materialist part of uh, the way we might interpret other facets of the world. Um, but nevertheless, uh, we kind of know what's being said when we say, um, you know, the saints had miracles attributed to them, or when we say even revolutionary figures have miracles attributed to them. Um, like I said, not, I'm not saying that like it's all fake and we all know that secretly behind closed doors. I'm, I'm like naively Christian enough to basically believe that, I don't know, saints do whatever we say they do. They fly <laughs> around and bilocate and whatever. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. The world is weirder than we know. But uh, the point is, like, um, whether or not they're true, right, what's really being said uh, in that is that these are people of, uh, you know, larger than life importance. They're extra temporal. They're somehow beyond history, outside history. Mm -hmm. And that matters. And we see it even, I think, in like the most materialist left, right? Like if you talk to, a, you know, a true believer, a communist about like Fidel Castro, you're going to hear some like very funny stories about how Fidel survived, you know, a thousand assassination attempts and like how doves landed on his shoulders. Right. Like all <laughs> these kind of like bizarre, miraculous events that happen around Fidel. And that's, and that's completely different than a saint. Right. It's not the same thing at all. It's uh, just it's <laughs> yeah. totally different. It's totally different. We swear. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, but but this is it. Or you get the same thing with whoever, like pick your favorite communist hero in history. Like there are all these kind of uh, stories, right, that, that kind of accrue toward them. And the point that Gary is making, I think, is that we don't have to actually be like, oh, that's bad and we shouldn't do that. But rather be kind of attend to functionally what's happening when that occurs. Like, yeah. what is that really speaking about a struggle? And I think that is a really good way to, uh, I don't know, get in the weeds with history and figure out what to do with it. Yeah, I think so too. I really appreciate the just using the word kaleidoscopic in in this context is a really good mm -hmm. uh, a good descriptive phrase to talk about what's going on here. Um, man, this is I don't know, it's probably a, a dumb and stupid revealing thing about myself, but like there's a there's a moment in undergrad where I was like very interested in the historical Jesus movement, um, mm -hmm. which if you're not familiar, dear, dear listener. <laughs> it's like a bunch of nerds who are like okay well i know it does say that jesus rose from the dead but maybe he didn't and like here's how we could know or whatever and it's like you know the that's sorry that's my nerd voice um <laughs> different different than my regular good voice um yeah. but you know it's just like trying to get the historical facts or whatever only and kind of parse out all of like the uh you know what what can we know about the gospels in this like only only historical sided kind of view and like, I think that's actually really interesting. And there's maybe some some fun things to like be learned about that. But also, it does kind of like, <laughs> it does rob a lot of the power from those stories. And that is kind of a bummer. Um, but I, I, anyways, all that to say, I appreciate the kaleidoscopic part, because like, what if you can pick up more of these types of meanings to like historical things? Uh, or like, I mean, especially when they come to religion or something like what if you could pick up more of them at once? Or like hold things in tension? Or, if, you know, think about them? Um, 
in, in tandem with one another, like through a kaleidoscope, a kaleidoscope, right? You're like looking, it's spinning, it's like all kinds of different things at once. And I really appreciate mm-hmm. that um, because uh, I don't know, man, religion's a hard thing to think about. Um, and uh, especially the miraculous stuff doesn't lend itself well, well to my brain particularly, but um, I guess I'm here for it because it's all just like, you know, it's all there and um, kind of have to come to accept that maybe. <laughs> yeah I, you know to me it's just the weirder the better uh if you can get a weirder and weirder in here then you can actually start getting something done that's how i feel <laughs> maybe um <laughs> yeah uh just going a little further here and then we can get walter benjamin in the mix i guess but uh geary says it must be clear then that the past as the powers of the other shore or the marvelous in the real is not something to be discovered through an objective investigation of the past it is not at all a question of rationally reconstructing the facts of the present as they actually happened. Yeah. Right. And that's what we've been saying. But I think that's the key. It's like, yeah, I don't know. We could maybe figure out the historical Jesus and sort out which miracles were which and which ones we want to believe or could believe or <laughs> which ones test the limits of, of what our rational brains will tolerate. But it's also like, <laughs> I don't know, Jesus told a bunch of pigs to run in the river and like they did it, you know, right? Like that is way more fun to live in that <laughs> universe. And uh, it's it's about expanding that those imaginative capacities mm-hmm. because like we do live in a capitalist narrative that completely closes down any possibility outside of capitalism. And, you know, we can imagine wild possibilities in capitalism, right? Like go see a Marvel movie. It's like you can watch people fly around and like shoot lasers and go to space and like eliminate half the population of all the universe with a stamp of a finger. You can do all that under capitalism, right? Uh, Like people just go back to work after that in those movies. um, And that's like part of it, right? Uh, So being able to expand our imagination in different directions that maybe don't lead to uh, a world where you, you can imagine, you know, Spider-Man, but you can't imagine uh, socialism. I think that's important. And uh, the powers of the other shore, whether it's in Marxist history or class struggle history or movement history or Christian history, uh, it's important to kind of just allow ourselves to be open to what that does to to create a little more elasticity in our brains. Yeah, well, that's right. And that's actually a really important part of it, too, though, right? Like, um, you could see Spider-Man as, like, one of these types of figures or whatever. And it would be really bonkers to do it, though, because, like, Spider-Man fundamentally doesn't change, you know, your identity in the world. It doesn't under, it doesn't change, like, you know, anything about your relationship to, to capital or whatever, right? Whereas um, uh, Makandal does, <laughs> right? If you're, if you're a Haitian person, um, that is, like, a completely um, altering character. Or if you're, I, I don't know, like, whatever lots of different people can fill this role in different historical ways that are interesting. But like, you know, um, you have to think too, that, that some, some characters, some um, miraculous uh, epiphanies, I'm sorry, some mythical epiphanies, they don't like foot the bill, right? Like, just like I said a minute ago, right? Like this would be a very lame thing to do with like George Washington or something. It doesn't make any sense. There's nothing strategic or like changing to your identity. It's just like, um, yeah, George Washington, he's great. I love this guy. And like, that's why I'm going to just keep being like a really good American or something. I don't know. Right. There's like nothing there. Yeah. Although I guess the difference between Spider-Man and George Washington and McIndall is, uh, you know, like it's important that these people, yeah, yeah. Wild sense for sure. But it's important that these people are real, right? Like you can, 
like there's something about Mackendall that locates him in history. Um, you know, the Saints are well for the most part located in history. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. We we can believe that they are. <laughs> um, whereas like Spider Man is not right. It's the the character of fiction or something. And there's something about that tie to the past that is also really constitutively important. And it's what makes um, a figure like Mackendall or Zapata so powerful, and what makes a figure like George Washington so dangerous, right? Like. It is a it's a historical precedent that we use to license our actions in the present and which things we take as precedents and which things we take as uh, has bad presidents. Um, (laughs) That makes all the difference. I think it really does matter. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's talk more about that part of it, because I think that's where things get really fascinating. So. uh, Geary brings in Walter Benjamin, everyone's favorite philosopher of history. We've talked about Benjamin a lot on the show. I mean, I think anytime we talk about history, you probably do talk about Benjamin because he's like the guy. Um, Anyways, let me read this piece and we can kind of talk through more of what you're saying here, Dean. Um, As Walter Benjamin powerfully expresses, to articulate the past historically does not mean to recognize it the way that it really was. It means to seize hold of a memory as it flashes up at a moment of danger. Um, So this piece of Benjamin here is really important um, because it's, uh, you know, there's there's totally a place for historicism and like learning the facts. Like that's great. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great exercise for the nerds and you know, the rest of us can benefit from it too. Um, but like when it comes to politics, that's not exactly what history is necessarily about. Or not in this register of thinking at least, right. It's about seizing hold of a memory as it becomes relevant. Right. And then like you do something with it. That is, you know, that is exactly the the power of someone like Zapata or McCondall, um, you know, or, Joe Hill or, or whoever, um, they th- there's a moment where that memory becomes really important and it mobilizes people in a way that like probably nothing else would. Yeah, I think that's right. And the like we said, it matters kind of that you can locate these people in in an identifiable past. And I think for Benjamin, what I've always found so interesting about Benjamin is that attention to the past. You know, it's really easy to. Uh, like people charge people on the left and Marxists and others with uh, wanting to destroy all the past, right? To create a new world whole cloth and like not always without good reason. I mean, there are currents on the left and in the history of communism and socialism that that have been that way. And uh, I don't know, they're not for me, but I like what Benjamin does, which is to say, we have to find some way of being accountable to the past, uh, being present with the past, <laughs> making the past present, however you want to put it. Um, and uh, Geary, for instance, draws further on Benjamin by contrasting that with uh, European fascism, which we sometimes also see as a, a kind of attempt to appeal to the past. But there's a way that it is tied more to the future in a kind of dangerous way, right? Like, um Geary pulls out all kinds of ways in which uh, like the Nazis were really invested in um, electrifying the working class, you know, like uh, pulling them into a highly technologized future and so on. Um, So not preserving the idyllic character of peasant life in in rural Germany or whatever, Mm -hmm. but sort of uh, turbocharging um, the working class to violent and genocidal ends. Right. It, It is a. The combination of industrialism and absolutely horrifying reactionary politics. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the same thing could be said of like Italian futurism or something as well, right? Yeah. It's all about like going fast and blowing stuff up. And uh, exactly, know, exactly. Your your mom's great Italian villa is like not not it, right? We want a future with like brutalist buildings and tanks. Exactly, and you know we can talk more about that in a minute because I think some of that maps on in interesting ways with Christo fascism and evangelicalism, and some of it has to be kind of said differently, but. Yeah. Um, it's important, though, because it's a good contrast to what Benjamin is doing in that context, right? He's saying, well, I don't want that. Like, I don't want uh, to turbocharge the the world and forget about the past. On the contrary, Benjamin wants to find a way of authentically kind of um, bringing the past with us, right? Or, or finding a way to redeem the past. Um, and it's also what separates Benjamin not only from the fascists, but from the social democrats. So uh, Geary has this great... Uh, paragraph where he quotes Benjamin. Um, he says, Benjamin absolutely nails it when he describes how social democracy thought fit to assign the working class the role of the redeemer of future generations, in this way cutting the sinews of its greatest strength. This training made the working class forget both its hatred and its spirit of sacrifice, for both are nourished by the image of enslaved ancestors rather than that of liberated grandchildren. Uh, Geary says, as as a peer redeemer of future generations with no basis in the history of past oppression, the supposedly forward-looking working class was bereft of the sinews of its greatest strength. It was fighting fascism asininely without anger, without a sense of hatred or revenge, only to often cross over to the other side. Could we say that Benjamin here is warning us against the wavering and capitulating anti-fascism that would follow from rational history and rational politics? Mm. Right. So the key here is uh, to allow the past to become so large in our consciousness that we seize it and see ourselves as accountable to it. And I think this is such an important point. Um, it is what drives me endlessly up the wall <laughs> about like other not just social Democrats, but like certain brands of socialism that are out there these days. Right. Like fully automated luxury space communism. It is exactly this. It's the. Uh, the dream of the future liberated grandchildren, you know, um, kind of uh, everybody gets an infinity pool politics. Um, but Benjamin's goes in the opposite direction, right? It's uh, I've seen the suffering of other human beings. I'm remembering the suffering of other human beings. And there has to be uh, an account for that, right? Um, there has to be some kind of way of, uh, of settling those scores. And of course, you know, Christians have things to say about things like revenge and hatred and all the rest of it. But I think it's really important to preserve um, exactly what Benjamin and Geary are saying here, that uh, an authentic kind of socialism is actually rooted in sort of the cry of the past, right? The cries that are accumulating every single day uh, that passes by into an even bigger past full of suffering. Uh, that's sort of the the motivation for building a better world, not a totally abstracted uh, Marvel movie version of socialism, I guess, if you will. Yeah, I think that's really um, it's really fascinating. Um, yeah, the, the grounding is really important. Um, and uh, OK, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of uh, dunking on, on uh, luxury space communism. Because, uh, man, in some ways it seems like a really great idea. But on the other hand, you're right. I think that uh, having that grounding in history um, is really important. Um, let's talk about this for a minute, though, because the the picture of fascism that we do get here is actually maybe different than the than the picture of fascism we often paint on this this podcast. Um, you know, the the fascism of of like, uh, like I said, of Italian futurism or of, or of the Nazis or whatever. 
um, you know, you can see it plenty of places in the United States, I suppose. But um, when we talk about fascism on the Magnificast, we're often focusing on, um, you know, on Christian fascism, uh, Christo fascism, if you will, to coin a term. Uh, well, to coin someone else's term, it's fine. Um, <laughs> to borrow Dorothy's away. Exactly. Term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, but anyways, I, I think it's important because that type of fascism is something that's a little bit different. There's a little bit of a different aesthetic to it. Um, it's not not quite the way that it appears here. And that is actually important to parse out because uh, Christo fascism is, you know, it's about a sort of like uh, a gradual wading into fascism that you accept, um, not because it's like uh, an immaculate vision of the future, but because it's uh, it relies on a, a familiar nostalgia of uh, white supremacy or something. You know, it's um, it's it's relying on the history that uh, not of not of your liberated uh, not of your liberated children in the future who get infinity pools and socialism, but it's like you know uh, the nostalgia for a, a, a time where like white people only were in charge or something. Um, so I guess that might be worth thinking through a bit more here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is something about the past that is important to Christo-fascism as well. And of course, whatever, important to Nazis and the Italians and everybody else. But, um, <laughs> but who cares but about their feelings? The weird, Yeah, and not me. But the weird thing about Christo-fascism is that there's also a way that, you know, they're, they're doing something similar. They're seizing on fake moments in the past, right? Mm-hmm. They don't care about the rational interpretation of history. They're They're kind of making it up and... Uh, with great success, right? They're doing a better job than Listen, we are. JFK is still alive, and he's going to come back any minute. <laughs> any minute, and uh, he would vote for Donald Trump, right? So uh, there's that part of it that is definitely present. But I think there is also an important future part uh, that maybe still makes them the inverse of <laughs> luxury space communism in a weird way, which is to say evangelicals also are imagining, and, and Christo-fascists generally, they are imagining a future for liberated grandchildren, right? Uh, I mean, explicitly in many cases, it it is a literal fear over the future of their grandchildren. Um, but for them, the fear is not like climate change or that capitalism will grind their grandchildren into dust or whatever. It's a fear that they'll be taught that, I don't know, trans people exist, right? Or that you should account for um, <laughs> like racial justice in, in our world and build a political system that is oriented toward it, right? Th- there's this sort of ultimate driving concern with the safety of the future generation um, that uh, kind of binds it in this weird way, too, to that uh, strange left-wing fantasy of of the future. So I guess all that to say, uh, Christo-fascism is so weird because I guess it, it inherits that same fascist impulse that Benjamin noted, that kind of fake future that it wants, the the dream of liberated grandchildren. But it also uh, adds on to that this really important uh, rooting in the past. Mm-hmm. So the the future is supposed to look like an imagined version of the past yeah. in this important way. Yeah, exactly, a very like a very racist retro futurism. There you go. Right, as opposed to you know the the difference with the sort of left wing usage of the past is you're not trying to restore anything right. because what would you restore? It would be another situation of class oppression, mm-hmm. right? That we're, we're trying to overcome those kinds of uh, antagonisms and inequalities. And so it's not about uh, making the past come back. Uh, it's about activating the moments in the past that are flinging us toward some kind of uh, situation in which we can try our best to redeem those uh, those past injustices or suffering. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's leveraging a particular fi- figure of the past to like make sense of revolt in the present or something, right? And 
I, yeah. I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's where it's different, right? You're taking someone from the margins um, who was struggling against whatever hegemonic power, uh, colonial or otherwise, and, um, you know, reinterpreting it into the moment. I think, I mean, it's clearly different than, <laughs> yeah, the liberated grandchildren of uh, uh, into a, a more white supremacist society or something. Okay, mm-hmm. let me read the conclusion here uh, from Geary, and we can kind of talk it out and see what else there is left to say. Uh, so he writes, the past appears in its immediacy in the present. It's not about collecting or documenting these past struggles or putting it all down in history books as rational knowledge, but of how they speak in and through present struggles, refracted and recirculated through the world. Rational history and rational politics easily lend themselves to the acceleration of capital, with the vast majority, workers, the precariat, or even the middle class, apparently moving with the current or riding the wave. This is the recipe for a fascist futurism, underpinned by the glories of a mythic past. The mythic epiphany of the rebel taking over the city and, and Makandal or Sidnak or the powers of the other shore powerfully block this fascist futurism. Here's a dialectical movement powered by the depth and density of the memory of historical oppression, such as the insight of historical materialism. This is not, however, just an intellectual insight. It is inseparable from the political injunction and sequence of the Bhima Korrigan, which is the battle that this is all kind of stemming from <laughs> in the Indian context. It beckons a commensurate political practice. So I think this is kind of the conclusion that we were getting to, but uh, said in a, in a far more eloquent way <laughs> um, that, uh, you know, the fascist politics are uh, going to leverage an imagined past for the future, for, uh, you know, the liberated grandchildren, like we were saying. And um, on the other hand, the, the mythic epiphany is... Um, is is trying to find ways that the uh, you know Makandal or Sidnak or or Zapata or or anyone can kind of speak anew to a current situation, um, you know, from the margins against power, these kinds of things. So I don't know, um, Dean. I, I feel like you know we, we started off the conversation with talking about the saints and talking about Christianity and the ways that um, I, I don't know political imagination comes with comes into the the Christian political discourse. I, wh- where does this all leave us? Do you think? yeah um i really like thinking about this stuff in particular thinking about how to make the past active i really like thinking about archives and what's going on back there and digging around and figuring out who you can find and what you can find and what that uh, gives you permission to do or be today right and one theologian I really like, I've probably mentioned this before, is uh, Johann Baptist Metz. Not without his problems, but he's a, uh, he was a German Catholic theologian who read a lot of Walter Benjamin and tried to sort of think through the church in a lot of those terms. And he thought of Christianity as kind of a, a repository for a dangerous memory, as he put it. So the church kind of has this memory that is always messing it up. <laughs> like uh, it can become as um, controlling and cold as, you know, the machinations of bureaucracy and wealth and power and everything else will allow the church to become. But nevertheless, um, there are these hot coals at the bottom, right? These, uh, the memory of Jesus as a radical person, the memory of all kinds of radical saints, whether it's St. Francis or Oscar Romero or, whoever else it might be, there are these kind of uh, dangerous memories under there that threaten even the stability of the church. And I think uh, or at least the stability of the, the church that has, you know, tried to kind of cover those hot coals over. And I think that is a significant thing for Christians on the left, right? It's like, what, what, what are the dangerous memories that we can kind of 
activate uh, the the mythical epiphanies in the the saintly tradition that we can find um, and uh, yeah, make make them operative and usable for now. I think that is a very cool way to kind of keep thinking about All Saints Day, what's going on back there, um, how to operationalize that stuff, make it make it present in an important way. Um, I don't know. That's how I. <laughs> that's what that's what gets me going. <laughs> what about you, Matt? What are we supposed to do with these these saints? Yeah, you know, I'm never quite sure. I mean, I think what you said is right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, when it comes to thinking through the ways that institutions hold memory or like hold information, even like you know, they every institution finds a way to tell its own story. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, you think of like the church as a, as a type of archive. I think that's right. I mean, it is. Uh, to me, though, the thing that always strikes me is that like archives, in some way, have to be about access to those archives. Mm-hmm. And you know, like okay, for the Zapatistas, and you know, like or you know, the figure of Zapata or Macandal or whatever, those those figures. I mean, they would not be hard to find in the archive of the moment, right? It's like. Well, it's, you know, a person who led a slave revolt or, or or whatever, you know, these are like figures that are not just like linked to the history of the people that are like living them um, through, you know, not just geography, but about, you know, the sort of cultural stories that they would tell and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But I guess like to me, the thing that seems hard to parse is exactly like, <laughs> I don't know, like, where where do you find all of these people? I mean, like in the West and like sort of in the uh, in the core of the empire or whatever it's a, a little bit harder to figure this part out. Like, you know, who are the, who are the saints? Who are the, the mythic uh, people that will just like come to us? And I guess it's like a, it's a harder question to answer. Um, you know, it's like, how do we access that part of our own archive or whatever <laughs> um, uh, without being like culturally appropriative or weird or bad <laughs> in some kind of other way? Always a, <laughs> the three things you shouldn't be. Yeah, weird, culturally appropriative, or bad. You don't want to be <laughs> any of those things. All I'm trying to say here is that, like, I think this is a really cool idea, but man, the archive is bad sometimes. Like, how do you, you know, yeah. it's just like you wander wander the stacks looking for somebody good, <laughs> and all you can find is yeah. Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, right? Is the archive is always uh, full of contradictions, um, or uh, you know, for uh, the way I always like to put it is for every Saint Constantine, right, the consolidator of of empire. There's also a Saint Anthony, right, the the monk who goes out into the desert and rejects the the urban life entirely, and th- that's just it, right? <laughs> They're both floating around in there. And you have to uh, grab the one that flashes up in a moment of danger, like Benjamin puts it, right? Constantine doesn't float, flash up in a moment of danger. Um, St. Francis of Assisi might, maybe. He yeah. does for me anyway. <laughs> I don't expect him to, to do that for everybody. But um, yeah, it's kind of just allowing those things to appear um, when when they need to appear, when when the epiphany needs to happen. Yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of part of the part of my point, though, is that you have to like learn how to tell these stories for yourself. And that can yeah. be a complicated thing. Um, yeah. And then communicating them them to other people. Like, um, I don't know. Uh, the, the moment arises and Gerard Wynn Stanley is your man. And they have to tell everyone around <laughs> you, like, why this weird English guy is, like, the go-to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All to say, it's not without complication. But uh, I guess you have to, you got to stumble around the archives for a little bit sometimes. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast, and there you will find an archive 
of lots of other podcasts that we have done. <laughs> we do a podcast called The Lock-In, uh, usually pretty frequently. It's been a little, a little hit or miss lately, but that is life for you. Uh, it's a podcast about current events. We do some jokes and so on, so you can check that out at our Patreon. There's a Discord and lots of other stuff going on. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and everything else. Uh, you can send us an email if you want, I guess. Uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have